Hello, welcome to this week's podcast from Reflux UK. I'm Nick Boyle, consultant surgeon and founder. Now, when we talk about reflux, gastroesophageal reflux disease, otherwise known as GORD or GERD, everyone thinks immediately of heartburn and indigestion, along with regurgitation chest pain and swallowing difficulties, these are all symptoms that originate in the esophagus. They're often caused by excess acid or other stomach contents in the esophagus, usually caused by failure of the lower esophageal sphincter or valve. Certainly, those of us who treat patients with reflux will see many people with these so-called classical symptoms. However, over many years, it's been recognised that reflux can cause a completely different set of symptoms. Sometimes these can be secondary to aspiration of stomach contents and acid into the lungs, but more commonly symptoms that originate in the throat. The fact that there are numerous websites dedicated to giving advice to patients with what is known as LPR or laryngopharyngeal reflux, a condition also sometimes colloquially known as silent reflux, reflects the prevalence of these type of throat symptoms. Indeed, Studies that have looked at just how commonly they occur in the community suggest that just as many people have throat symptoms that may be secondary to reflux as have indigestion and heartburn. By the time they get referred into secondary care, the economic burden is enormous. At least 10% of all patients seen in ENT clinics have LPR-type symptoms. What's more, Many will enter what we at Reflux UK call a cycle of frustration, with people going from clinic to clinic and back and forwards to their GP and consultants in ENT, gastroenterology, psychology, and sometimes even surgery over many years without ever resolving their symptoms satisfactorily. And certainly, we've treated many patients, including undergoing surgery, who've had symptoms literally for decades. The reasons are complex. Definitions of what LPR actually is, is disputed. Some clinicians don't agree that GORD, by conventional definition, can even cause throat symptoms. Certainly, as I'm sure we'll explore later, these can be caused by many other conditions apart from reflux. Treatment is often ineffective, partly because the causes of LPR symptoms are still incompletely understood. And I think especially because the tools we have to test for reflux and prove that it is the cause of throat symptoms are often not as accurate as we'd like, and certainly they're not widely available. For instance, pepsin, the powerful enzyme that is secreted in the stomach, cannot be easily measured, and many scientists think that this may well be a more significant cause of LPR symptoms than acid, which may explain why PPIs, which are prescribed as first-line treatment, often don't work. Finally, The evidence base of what does and doesn't work, including PPI drugs and anti-reflux surgery, is incomplete. And so clinicians often find it difficult to advise patients on the likely outcomes of treatment options. So, tonight, we're going to try to throw some light into this vexed question of LPR or silent reflux and to explore what we know and what we don't know so patients can get more of an understanding, we hope, of the current knowledge base. We are joined by three experts in LPR. Professor Janet Wilson has been Professor of ENT Surgery at Newcastle University since 1995. Indeed, 
she was the only the second female to be appointed to a UK chair in a surgical discipline. She has established and continues to run UK evidence-based medicine review days in otolaryngology, and she contributes to national research priority settings in this specialty. She graduated in 1976 and uh, took uh, an MBCHB in Edinburgh in 1979. She has a special interest in the extraesophageal manifestations of gastroesophageal reflux, the etiology and treatment of persistent throat symptoms, including tonsillitis in adulthood, dysphagia in the throat, the sensation of globus, hoarseness, and socially disruptive snoring, as well as patient involvement in decision-making. She's enormously widely published and was the lead author on the so-called Topic study, which examined the use of PPIs in treating reflux symptoms. Professor Martin Birchall is one of the leading, world's leading laryngeal specialists with 150 papers and a multi-million laryngeal-related grant income every year. He trained in Liverpool, London, Australia, and was a professor in Bristol, Liverpool, and most recently at UCL. And he has also served as a, a honorary position at the University of California, Davis. He led the groups that performed the world's first stem cell-based organ transplants in adults and children, and has written published work on the effects of reflux on the throat, as well as many other aspects of head and neck disease. 75% of his practice is with patients referred from other consultants due to the difficulty of their problems. Paul Goldsmith is a consultant surgeon based at the Manchester Royal Infirmary. He has a special interest in gastroesophageal reflux disease and especially in patients with atypical symptoms. He graduated from the University of Leeds and subsequently trained in Yorkshire. He moved to Manchester for higher surgical training and has spent time in the Netherlands. He's published over 50 papers and presented his work nationally and internationally. He is one of the most experienced link surgeons in the UK and runs a reflux MDT with colleagues in gastroenterology, ENT, and GI physiology. I personally have the pleasure of working with both Paul and Martin, and we spent many hours discussing how best to treat our patients with laryngopharyngeal symptoms, the subject of today's podcast. So Janet, gentlemen, um, we're absolutely delighted and we're honoured that you've joined us tonight. You're most welcome. Let's start by just considering when we talk about LPR, what these symptoms are, what are we, what are we talking about? The patients come along, uh, as I've just said, so often to see their GPs and to see, uh, to see ENT surgeons. What are the symptoms which LPR is thought to, to cause? Martin, give us an idea of the, the sort of things that you see. Oh, you know, thanks, Nick. So I think not to derail the entire title of the talk, just straight off. I, I prefer to use the term extraesophageal reflux, but it's not as catchy. I think the term LPR is kind of stuck and you have patients coming to you saying they've got, think they've got LPR now. I say extraesophageal reflux because the symptoms are really not just laryngeal. You know, they, they, it can impact on the throat and on swallowing. It can impact on indeed dentition uh, and it can cause chronic cough and, and lung issues as well. So it's not just the larynx that, that can be affected by by reflux. So when considering, you know, the presentation of people with LPR, I think, first of all, we are 
considering quite a basket of symptoms uh, and of which only a small proportion will eventually prove to have evidence that reflux is contributing to their symptoms. I'm sure that one of the problems is that the symptoms that you just described can be caused by a whole host of other potential pathologies as well as reflux. And indeed, part of the workup, the tests which ENT surgeons may decide to put patients through is designed to exclude those those other causes as much as it is to try to prove that people have got reflux. So, so Janet, could you just give us an idea of what those other things going through your mind are when you see you see these type of patients? The the commonest of the throat symptoms that we see in any survey, the single commonest, is throat clearing. And I think that's a very useful thing to remember because, of course, each of us uh, could voluntarily, if you like, semi-volitionally clear our throat. So it's partly uh, a sensation, it's partly a manoeuvre, maybe a response to certain things. So the kind of things that we're looking for are not necessarily things you would find by investigation, but things perhaps in the history. So if you think of the demographic of throat symptoms, the peak age, whether it's globus or Qatar, uh, is probably going to be women around the age of 50. And around that time, we're thinking of perimenopausal, mucosal changes, uh, skin gets drier, women relate very easily to this. If you start talking about dry skin to a woman with throat symptoms, uh, we can all resonate with that kind of experience. So throat dryness and the reactions to throat dryness, um, things like um, being more aware of the throat, um, working the throat, doing excessive numbers of dry swallows, which of course swallows the saliva and exacerbates the dryness, these kind of things. Snoring can make it worse. If people get anxious, it's a very common response. People get a new throat symptom. They Uh, catastrophize it and the anxiety that comes from that uh, of course with the extra adrenaline is another drying factor something we can all relate to Uh, some have occupational issues so they might be overusing the voice time was call centers didn't exist people are now asked to do very very demanding schedules which speech therapists are, are horrified about where they don't get a minute's respite so there's not even a micro break so all of these other environmental, habitual sort of factors, endogenous factors, uh, these are probably more likely to be playing a part than you might think um, an abnormal amount of mucus. Because some of the other things have been done to death over decades, the thyroid issues, the sinusitis issues, spondylitis, all of that. There's nothing really consistent or convincing in many of these other organic triggers. I mean, how often do you get worried about patients investigating patients for cancer because of course this is an anxiety that many of them will have well we've got the huge benefit in in an ENT outpatient clinic where we can do a very thorough examination of the oral cavity with the naked eye um, of the neck by palpation um, to to a reasonable level and uh, with a fiber optic endoscope and with the right maneuvers if you know how to position the patient how to get them to expand their pharynx unless they've, they've got a very obese neck you can usually get a really good well-expanded view much superior to what you could get in somebody lying down having some sort of sedated or anesthetized endoscopy so most of the time that is what we are relying on and that is the beginning middle and end of our investigations as regards 
cancer. But we also have the, the wonderful statistics that show us that actually having globus, if you're in a kind of cancer suspicious situation, it's actually, it seems to protect you against having cancer. It's a negative predictor for having cancer. So to have things like hoarseness and globus actually reduce your chance of having cancer because the head and neck cancer symptoms are really kind of quite a different basket of persistent, worsening, unremitting uh, symptoms, whereas the fluctuating nature over time of these other symptoms makes them very weak candidates for cancer. So that's that's very helpful. So, you know, you can you can reassure the vast majority of patients simply by listening to what they have to say, what their history is, and, and examining them in, in the clinic. But, of course, there, there may well be many of these patients in whom the, the thought is that they uh, their symptoms are secondary to reflux. So, Martin, perhaps you could just build a little bit on what the theories are as to how reflux actually causes these sorts of symptoms and what evidence there is to support these theories. So when, when Janet and I started out, uh, there, was, there was kind of a vacuum of things that one could say about the throat. So when somebody came along from America and said, well, actually, a lot of throat symptoms can be ascribed to reflux, I think there was a great relief amongst the ENT community that we could finally find something that we could put a, hang a hat on and give people medicines for. And so the concept of extrasophageal reflux spread like wildfire throughout the world. And I think, you know, like, um, like enthusiasm about all new uh, interventions, all new treatments, it, it took a long time for people to realize that actually not everything that you look at in the throat or, uh, and, or every single throat symptom is indeed due to reflux. And, and so the expectation came crashing down. Um, and now I think it's starting to find its level. I think people are starting to understand that, you know, the majority of symptoms that we're seeing in the interclinic probably aren't due to acid. But we, we have to have a, you know, a high threshold of awareness that, that some of those, those symptom patterns um, are more likely. So that's ki- kind of where we're up to at the moment, where we're, we no longer think that it's the cause of everything. And we don't believe that it's the cause of nothing. And we're still trying to trying to identify that exact, uh, that middle route. In terms of actual mechanisms, um, these are pretty clear, I think. And certainly from animal models and uh, laboratory studies, we know that acid uh, and pepsin, uh, gastric type pepsin, can be very destructive to the very thin mucous membranes that coat the larynx in particular, um, but also other parts of the throat as well. Pepsin is an incredibly destructive enzyme that churns through proteins uh, when it's activated. Um, and it can also hang around in tissues as well. So if, if one has a significant reflux episode, just one in, over a f- course of a few days, the pepsin could theoretically hang around in the tissues of the throat and then be reactivated for further damage uh, at a later date, kind of making it quite a difference um, temporarily from classical gastroesophageal reflux. So I, th- I think we know how, how the damage could occur. The, the, the problem is still identifying those people who actually have a reflux component. And I think that's part of the problem, isn't it, Paul? And we'll come on a little bit in a moment to the, to the tests that we can do. But do you just want to add at all to what Martin just talked about? Yeah, yeah I think that, that leads nicely on to non-acidic reflux disease. I mean, people often assume that reflux is due to excess reflux of uh, acid comp- from the stomach but as martin just touched on there 
there's pepsin, which is an enzyme which is, helps to digest uh, protein and it's secreted by the stomach. And it can be quite erosive, especially when it comes up the esophagus and starts to affect the, uh, the larynx and the pharynx, the different linings there. And it can cause lots of symptoms that's been touched on, things like hoarseness and sore throat, sore throat voice disorders and, and cough. You know, I think what we have to look at is, is these other roles, these other causes of, of LPR that isn't traditionally secondary to acid and where some current medications may not be as, as effective. Martin, just to come back to you uh, uh, quickly then, because, of course, gastroesophageal reflux disease conventionally is defined by measuring excess acid in the esophagus, and that's the way we, 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 we traditionally diagnose it. But, you know, you'd have thought, wouldn't you, that if you've got reflux, whether it's pepsin or acid, caused by whatever mechanism into the esophagus, and that that then is somehow getting up to cause these throat symptoms, you would expect patients to have both heartburn and indigestion as well as their throat symptoms. But of course, that's not always the case. Do we know why? I mean, do we know why some people get just throat symptoms in isolation and vice versa? The straight answer is no, (laughs) but but there are some quite compelling theories. Uh, And one theory is that actually because as as Paul was just saying, you know, there's so many erosive things contained in the stomach, acid and other things, that you actually don't need many episodes a week to to cause you symptoms, unlike gastroesophageal reflux, where you might be expecting to get heartburn, you know, many days in a week. You you wouldn't necessarily get that um, because you don't need that frequency of damage to cause uh, at least laboratory and histological evidence of damage. So, um, so that's one theory. The, the other one is, is related to reflexes. So um, that if you have something highly stimulatory in the lower part of the esophagus, that that may in some way be connected with other parts of the upper aerodigestive tract. It's been mooted to stimulate nasal mucus production, for example, through uh, a reflex and asthma through a reflex uh, without it necessarily traveling that far up. So, you know, there's there's a question of uh, how often you need to have the episodes uh, and therefore you may not be getting frequent heartburn. And also this question of whether some of it is reflex mediated rather than direct damage. I think that's a really important take home message, particularly to primary care doctors, that uh, just because patients don't have heartburn or indigestion does not mean they don't have throat symptoms caused by reflux. And I think very often that's a a uh, misapprehension. You know, I think we've talked a little bit then about all the symptoms. I think, Janet, a little bit earlier on, you suggest that there are some symptoms which can predict that uh, patients' um, symptoms are unlikely or less likely to be caused by reflux and some that suggest they might be slightly more uh, likely to be caused by reflux. But but what about other influences, other perhaps non-easily describable pathologies which could potentially influence these symptoms? And I'm thinking particularly about age, gender, personality, external life events. Just, just give us an idea of what's going through your head when you're taking a history with regard to these other influences which might affect the way people perceive their symptoms. Well, I think uh, we've done, uh, it's rather historic now, and of course the trouble about doing research early on when an area is becoming interesting is that the early research is often kind of forgotten uh, in the the slipstream. And if you look at the 
the, the PubMed citations for throat symptoms, that the whole LPR terminology took off um, quite dramatically um, under its own steam, which we might come back to when we think about systematic reviews. Uh, and so other work um, using terms which some countries like the States, they would hardly recognise the term globus anymore. That kind of work slightly got buried, but there was quite robust work looking at things like adverse life events. So you can measure minor daily life events called hassles with the Canner hassle scale and find that patients presenting with throat symptoms have an excess of those. Major life events using the Bedford Life Events Inventory, again, there's also some, a degree of um, neuroticism uh, was found in functional dysphonia in women patients. In other words, more anxiety uh, about symptoms. And some of the work suggested possibly a little more introversion. Of course, introverted people have more internal arousal and are more internally aware and are likely to be symptom monitoring. So you've got these kind of pathological, pathopsychological mechanisms, if you like, um, monitoring symptoms. It's a sometimes difficult to broach subject, but there are quite a lot of people with a high BMI going around in Britain now, and throat symptoms can be quite compelling in some of those individuals. And they get choking, they get choking at night, they get choking when they lie down. And again, it's something you can demonstrate sometimes to patients with laryngoscopy. And it's a tough conversation, but effectively what you're having to say to people is it's as if you're sleeping with somebody's hand around your neck because literally there just isn't enough space now. It's, it's just too small a space, particularly when you lie down. We've discussed briefly gender. There is a female preponderance. Uh, there are, of course, um, more women than men having a lot of what you might call functional symptoms. It was a source of great grief to me when I started uh, looking into this field. And I said to my psychology colleague, this is very embarrassing. You know, I'm trying to find more reflux. And the more reflux measures I do, the more I'm finding out that women have you know, too much symptom monitoring and reporting. And he said to me, don't worry, Janet, when men go bad, they end up in prison having beaten up old ladies and women are monitoring symptoms. So I, I've sometimes reflected <laughs> on that in, in recent sad months. Um, so the, I think there are certain things that have been around since forever, since Hippocrates, since Shakespeare, that there are more women than men with these things. And so uh, we, you can't ignore that fact when you're looking at etiology. So um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. Just, Janet, just to go back to the, the, you know, people have attempted over the years, haven't they, to develop schools so that you can ask people a series of questions and that will give you an indication as to how likely their symptoms are caused by reflux. There's this RSI score, which is which is very widely used, isn't it? Has anybody really been able to devise any tools which just help, you know, distinguish symptoms as a likely, likely, likely to be caused by reflux well, from those that are When we did our recent um, RCT of proton pump inhibitors, we used the RSI, and we decided to include people who had a, a you know, an adequate number of points, excluding there's a kind of composite heartburn and a dyspepsia item in the RSI, one out of nine, as you probably know. We, we knew that it was likely that most people with heartburn would have some improvement with PPI, so we didn't just want to be selecting out people with lots of heartburn in this uh, trial. So we, we had the RSI. We also had a, a, a more extensive, comprehensive reflux symptom score and the LPR, health-related quality of life score. And one of my colleagues subsequently on the trial uh, looked at all the baseline data and, in fact, wrote an MD looking at, which is still 
subject to final interrogation, so I better not say too much about it, but looking at potential for uh, cluster analysis or uh, composite factors emerging that might have defined groups of patients on the basis of their symptoms. And it didn't seem to be very promising. It's likely we're going to get a bigger or, or more meaningful data set because I think if your clusters aren't emerging in several hundred people, they're not going to be very strong clusters. So I think, in other words, it's probably... A mistake, and it has been a mistake for people to think, oh, this patient is a Qatar patient. That just happens to perhaps be the lead symptom that the GP has put on the letter when it was finally written, or the way the person perceives it. I don't think these nuances, I don't think they're going to be terribly helpful. Because if we can't identify a cluster of patients with similar symptoms, then we're never going to be able to investigate them. So let's let's just consider the test. And there's a whole lot of tests, aren't there? Martin, when patients come to see you and you look into the back of their, their throat, I think Janet mentioned it, talked a little bit earlier about laryngoscopy. Just what are you looking for? What is it that you, you could potentially see? And how accurately, dependent on what you see, can you say, well, I think this patient's symptoms are reflux related? Yeah, no, thanks, Nick. Um, so uh, what we do is we use a generally these days a flexible telescope to uh, we pass it into the nose, so it gives us a bird's eye view of the throat, and hope, hopefully we're able to take images um, of what we see so that it can be compared with any changes in the future. Using that kind of method, again, uh, Peter Blavsky, he devised this scoring system for the larynx called the reflux finding score, uh, which is based on certain particular observations which are given naught uh, to three depending on whether they're present or not up to a total of uh, I think it's around 24 and any score over 11 is deemed as supposed to be pathognomonic of, of reflux. Uh, it is again very overstated as, as such a diagnostic tool I think. I think a general indicator of uh, something going on in the throat uh, and some of the criteria in the original reflux finding score of since been negatively correlated with um, pH evidence, uh, pH testing evidence of uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux. So it is very subjective. Not all of the items, I think, do seem to reflect whether people have got reflux or not. And there's a lot of inter-observer variation in it as well. Uh, there are a couple of things I do look for and that are a bit more indicative. Uh, and in particular, some swelling just below the vocal cords Provided the, the patient's not too old, because you can get some relative, it might look relatively swelling, but swelling just below the vocal cords, uh, which creates something called pseudosulcus or a groove between the true cord and some swelling swelling below it. And if there is really a great deal of edema in somebody who you already strongly suspect of having reflux, um, I, I think those two things I, I would be looking for. But, you know, they are very subjective. They're, they're not terribly precise. You know, I think perhaps historically... Um, many patients would would have a barium swallow, uh, an X-ray to actually look at the throat and the esophagus. Do do you still use barium swallows? I think there may be still patients? occasional people of less experience in terms of perhaps years in the specialty who might still find this um, a kind of convenient bolt hole. But there's been quite a strong literature in in the UK ENT world for not doing barium swallows for quite some time. That's not to say you can't sometimes find a venous plexus or some trivial abnormality, but I think that's questionable, particularly now that patients are asked to sign informed consent before they have ionising radiation investigations, whether it's even ethical to do a barium swallow given the evidence base for it in persistent throat symptoms. 
I think if someone is a little bit atypical and you think, although you haven't found anything with a laryngoscopy, they might be having some obstructive symptoms. Maybe they're a bit more of a heavy smoker than the average patient, um, maybe a male, maybe a bit older, something just not quite right about the swallow. Then possibly in the clinic, a transnasal esophagoscopy might be an option. Sometimes I've offered that to patients and said, well, this would be our next step if you really want us to pursue the, the, the swallow obstruction side of things. What do you feel about that? And that the response to that can be quite revealing in itself. And often patients, in fact, will say, well, shall we just leave it just now since you can't see anything? And if it's not going away, or you know, then I'll come back for that. And, and what about MRI? I, I mean, I see an awful lot of patients who've had, who, with, with throat symptoms who've had an MRI for reasons which... I'm not entirely sure I really understand. What's your, um, you know, your feeling about the usefulness of, of, you know, well, of cross-sectional well, I think imaging? This is where this patients. kind of forum, where we meet people in other specialties, seeing the same group of patients, very interesting because I don't think I can remember requesting an MRI in someone with throat symptoms, and it's not something that would be common among my colleagues. I'd be interested to know what Martin would feel about this, but we regard MRI as quite an important scarce resource. It's probably already overused a bit in, in many situations, and I guess it might be used by some people who wanted to exclude cancer, although I can't see why one would do that instead of a another sort of more readily available cross-sectional imaging like CT scan. But again, it sounds like clutching at straws. And, and if you're if we're going to be living by diagnosis by exclusion, then it's, it's, we're, we're never going to have enough resource. It sounds like looking directly at the, at the larynx might help, but may well not help. Imaging isn't of any real value. So what about actually directly measuring reflux by putting catheters down into the esophagus as we do and, and measuring acid or, or um, non-acidic reflux. Paul, tell us a little bit about pH monometry and impedance. What, what do they do? Yeah. What, what, what are, how are they different? And how can they help in this situation? So if a patient with LPR-type symptoms come find me, it's normally because they've been to see Janet or Martin first or another ENT surgeon who have seen evidence of reflux high up and they want to see where it's coming from. So if they've not, Nick, I'm just going back a bit, I, there's a chance they'll probably need a gastroscopy first. It's something that um, I like to consider in these patients to see if we can't see anything high up around the vocal cords, or even if we can, is there something going on lower down that might contribute to their throat symptoms, such as inflammation of the lower esophagus or perhaps a hiatus hernia. When it comes to further tests, absolutely, esophageal motility studies and pH studies or something we're using more frequently now, impedance studies. The esophagus, whilst it's like a pipe, it's a muscular tube that moves um, with our swallows. And we know that long-standing acid reflux can affect motility and can contribute to symptoms. So a fine tube is placed through the nose and um, the physiologist will try and stimulate movement within the esophagus through swallowing, drinking, and perhaps eating and seeing what our responses are. These are very accurate tests that in some situations probably give us too much information. And what we can do is we can look at what the esophagus is like and whether there's any evidence that the esophagus has been damaged by reflux or whatever we're seeing or, or may not be. Then we come on to pH studies or impedance studies. And this is where the tube can be placed in your nose. It's normally there for 24 hours. And 
if we talk predominantly about impedance studies, it looks not just at liquid, but a sort of aerosol generating gas that can come up your esophagus. These tubes have a lot of little nodes on, on different areas going up the esophagus that can measure how proximal the extent of the gas or the liquid can go. And what I think is really important about the impedance studies, which is slightly different from the pH studies. So the pH studies look predominantly at acid, but as we've touched on over the last half an hour, we've talked about non-acidic reflux. The impedance studies can also look at any insults to the upper esophagus that is not acid related and picks up a, a large cohort of patients that traditionally may not have been picked up um, with just pH studies. So that's why we're sort of moving more towards impedance related studies. Okay. And, and actually, just to take a step back, Martin, there's been a, a, a the recent interest, hasn't there, in this phenomenon called the uh, esophageal inlet patch associated with laryngopharyngeal type symptoms. Just tell us a little bit about that and, 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 and how you identify it. I mean, we were all seeing these or, or, or not seeing them because they were just part of the scenery, you know, for, for most of our careers when we were looking in the esophagus. But there has been some increased interest in this recently. Uh, in particular, somebody called Jason Dunn at Guy's Hospital has done a pilot study which has suggested that uh, patients with uh, LPR or extraesophageal type symptoms that have been so far resistant to conventional treatment and have been found to have a gastric inlet patch respond to having this uh, ablated or, or, um, or removed. Uh, gastric inlet patch is uh, it's an area of probably congenital gastric mucosa that's uh, at the top part of the esophagus rather than metaplasia where it's, where it's changed later on. Um, and the theory is that because it's so high up, it would be easier for um, acid and pepsin and other enzymes to access the larynx and pharynx and cause problems. We don't know for certain whether it does so. As I say, there's this pilot data. And at the moment, there's a, a formal randomized trial, properly powered trial that's, that's ongoing that Jason's the principal investigator of, and that hasn't reported yet. So we don't know is the answer. But it's certainly something that, you know, now there's a suggestion that it might be influential. We're all starting to look for. I think they're relatively easy to, to ablate. Traditionally, we try, we, we measure uh, esophageal reflux, acid in the esophagus using uh, catheter tests. Uh, as Paul mentioned earlier on, there is the more, more technically advanced impedance test, which will measure non-acidic uh, reflux and gas, uh, as, well as, uh, as well as liquid. But there are some other uh, tests on the block, aren't there, um, which perhaps are slightly less untested, and the evidence based around is, is perhaps slightly weaker. Martin, just tell us a little bit about ResTech, about Cebu, and whether or not that testing for Cebu might be helpful in these patients, and PEP test, which many patients, I find, come, uh, come with a result because it's easily accessed online. Um, do you use these tests? What's the evidence that they can be helpful in day-to-day -day practice in recognizing patients who definitely have got reflux and distinguishing those who don't? One of the ideas to overcome this reticence to have something down your throat for 24 hours uh, was ResTech, which is a probe that sits in the nose and uh, picks up what's happening at the back of the pharynx or just behind the mouth. Uh, it's looking for low pH in aerosol uh, that uh, can be associated with, with reflux events. So the early studies were not well controlled and suggested that there was a high level of correlation with the more slightly more invasive 
24-hour studies. But subsequently, there's been a lot of doubt cast on its validity. For example, people who have had gastrectomies, where presumably they're not producing large amounts of acid, can come up as positive on a, on a rest tech study. Likewise, uh, we know that if this is measuring aerosol, one of the best ways to generate an acidic aerosol is to belch. And, and belching is a great confounder when it comes to measuring LPR because th that aerosol is going to come up. And, and a lot of the patients that we see actually have belching as well as what, whatever other symptoms are going on. Um, so I think it's been, to a certain extent, discarded by ENT surgeons, at least for the last decade. But there are now some newer studies and people looking at it with more interest to see whether there is actually, you know, if, if we really do drill down with some of the very best of the physiology data that we have now, uh, can we be a bit more specific and can it be helpful? The PEP test, on the other hand, uh, is where one spits into um, three pots. Uh, you can send off for them. It costs about 50 quid, I think. And a laboratory in whole will look at these three pots into which you you spat. You're supposed to spit when you're getting the worst symptoms. And there have been some studies which, again, have shown that this is well correlated and others that have not been so positive about it. Um, I think Janet has a view on this as well. Well, uh, I suppose as regards rest tech, a bit, a bit like some other pH probes, uh, it, it does make you very aware of acid that comes in through the mouth. If, I mean, if you swallow something like a piece of lemon chicken that happens to get stuck on the end of a, a pH probe, it, you can see it, if, if the diary matches quite well with the recording, you can see it hanging around there for a long time. Uh, does the laryngopharynx care whether the acid is stomach acid or food acid? That's another interesting question. I, I take the point about artifact, but I think when you've got something that's very convenient, the great advantage is it would be easy to apply in large samples of patients. And the problem about chasing more um, rarefied entities in small numbers of patients is that you then can't translate that message back um, to what Nick was talking about. What are we going to tell our primary care colleagues if you're looking at a very pointy end of the iceberg of symptoms and, and patients? So something like ResTech has the appeal that it, it could be applied with only minimal levels of discomfort to large numbers of people. Can I come in, Nick? I, I've, I've got a bit of experience with ResTech over the last 12 months. And I actually think it adds to the story. And I think that I have used it um, in a few patients where you take the story, you think these patients have reflux, it's got to be reflux, it can't be anything else. And then you get your impedance studies back and they come back and they're very underwhelming. And you're like, okay. And then you think, okay, where, where do we go now? And you still think the story is reflux. Did they get a, had, did they have their test during a good day? And it wasn't representative of their last three, four years. They've got symptoms. So we have been using ResTech. I appreciate it's, you know, I'm not saying it's for academia at the moment, but in the new sort of stages. And then when you do look at the tests, sometimes they are very impressive. And I use that in terms of, wow, you know, especially at night when they're supine, you've got their, looking at the ResTech, you've got their larynx bathed in acid for hours at a time, which I think can describe what an ENT surgeon would have seen on their nasopharyngeal, which can lend to that findings. And so I would never, as, as an upper GI surgeon, put an operation, say, go down that route based on this one test. But I do think it adds and it helps and it helps when counselling a patient and saying, well, you know, this is what we found. This is what I think is going on. So 
that's where I sit with ResTech. So I think that's really interesting. And I think, Paul, whether deliberately or not, you brought me to sort of the conclusion regarding the assessment of these patients, which is, in my experience, it very often, sadly, there isn't a killer test which gives you the absolute yes, black and white answer. And that very often you do have to put lots of bricks in the wall in order to come to some kind of conclusion. And even then, there very often is an element of discussion with the patient because we just don't know all the answers some of the time. But I think it's quite clear from that discussion that there's still a lot of work to do in, a, in developing some more reliable investigations. Um, so let's just, let's just move now to the treatment. You know, Janet, you've, you've been a, a lead author in a, a very uh, important study looking at PPIs. Uh, proton pump inhibitors are the most widely used antacids in the world, and they are widely given to patients who present with, with these symptoms. Now in primary care, very often you'll see patients who've been, been given a course of PPIs, uh, and of course they then come to see you or me because they haven't worked very well. What is the theory around the way that PPIs would work, and what is the evidence that they do or they don't work? And, and how, again, would you advise your primary uh, primary care colleagues with regard to the use of these drugs in, in these patients? Well, I mean, I think we were late coming to this study because I never had much real prediction that they were, they were going to do an awful lot. But as you say, they be, it became almost, a, it was almost like a referral criterion that, that one felt that GPs weren't allowed to send patients to ENT surgeons about throat symptoms unless they'd had a trial of proton pump inhibitors. And that seems rather mysterious because if you look at the, the evidence, there are, there are about 10 at least systematic reviews. They're all subject to considerable bias. They start with small studies. Some of the studies don't even have in them the the categories of treatment that the the meta-analysis is supposed to be analysing. And yet you'll find, if you look carefully in the literature, you can find over 700 references to nine of these systematic reviews. So they became terribly popular. And I guess one one would expect a proton pump inhibitor to suppress acid secretion by the stomach and not do much else than that. There's no need to be ashamed of itself for that. That's all you would expect it to do. Having said that, it's amazing how many people aren't told how to take proton pump inhibitors in terms of an empty stomach or to consider taking it if their main meals in the evening and the main symptoms are later on they're, pro- they're possibly um, entering a period of nocturnal acid breakthrough if such a thing exists by the time their symptoms are coming on so I think that we decided in our trial to use a maximum dose that would be total belt and braces, 30 milligrams of Lanzoprazole twice a day so that no one would come back and say, well, you needed a bigger a bigger boat, as it were. And we used them for four months because the evidence was that in throat symptoms, those who were proponents of antacid treatments, that the symptoms should respond quite quickly, but that the signs, if there were any, which we didn't find many, that would take about four months to respond. So we felt we'd kind of maxed out on the proton pump inhibitors in a, a large series of patients and without any noticeable benefit. Indeed, there were one or two points in follow-up where it looked as if placebo might be edging ahead. And perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised because there were other studies which showed a strong placebo response in throat symptom patients. And so any any study that doesn't have a good placebo limb in throat symptoms is not going to cut the mustard because of the placebo response that's, that's well established. So, Martin, I mean, do you, do, you, do you think that means, therefore, if PPIs don't seem to work very well in laryngopharyngeal reflux, does that mean that 
acid isn't the cause? Or is there another alternative explanation for this based upon either the structure of the, these studies or um, the way that PPIs work and the, causal, the, the causes of, of laryngopharyngeal reflux, the primary mechanisms by which reflux affects the larynx? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that there are, there are still a group of patients for whom who can be quite PPI resistant. And I think this is true of um, gastroesophageal reflux disease as well, you know, that, that uh, there's some people for whom it, it just doesn't do the trick. What we need, of course, is better personalised medicine where we can actually pick the ones who are, who are more likely to respond. It's a reasonable indicator. There's also another problem that Janet actually just mentioned, and that's, that's that of compliance as well. And, uh, you know, it, it, you really want them to be taking it twice daily, 30 to 40 minutes before meals, for a consistent period of time, and just keep doing that. And and I, I suspect, you know, not even, probably especially the the, uh, the healthcare givers don't do that. So I sus- I'm, I'm sure not all patients are highly compliant. People don't like taking medicines long term. I know, I know they're not desperately risky, but you know, certainly, as Janet said, you know, we're, we're, if, if a, a large proportion of patients we're dealing with are, are peri or postmenopausal ladies, they they don't want anything that's going to uh, enhance the possibility of osteoporosis, for example. So, so I, I think I think there is some caution about it. Well, what about alginate? So, you know, the the, the several over-the-counter medicines which you can buy which help to protect the esophagus uh, in various ways. Gabascon probably is the most commonly known. Is there any evidence these work? Certainly, anecdotally, I, I, I find a lot of patients with LPR will find they, they work better than PPIs. Uh, what's, the, what's the evidence? Uh, well, I mean, there are, there are some randomised trials which have shown that um, it's, it's just as good. I think um, J- Julian, I've forgotten his surname, in Nottingham. What, what's his surname, uh, Janet? Julian McGlashan. Thank you very much. I think it was him that did, that did a study that showed it was just as good as PPI for for P. Well, he did a he, he did a study that showed an impact, but there wasn't, as I recall, a no treatment group, um, and so that the it's never really been fully implemented. I think. Um, they're obviously potentially less toxic than PPIs, whatever age group you're talking about. I think the only specific um, caveat I would have about them comes back to the nocturnal thing, because if there is a raft and if stomach emptying takes about four hours, then the persistence of the raft by time is, is obviously limited. And this comes back to whether if you are using something like that, should you also be really exerting yourself to make sure the patient does have the head of the bed elevated and that they know how to elevate the head of the bed and that you know what their bed is like so that you can help them elevate the head of their bed. Because I think that tends to be rather skated over as a not very glamorous side of managing throat symptoms. But I think if you're going to use barrier, then it's important also to use position. Interest uh, recently in various diets. Uh, uh, in America, there are several authors who've sold uh, books by the, the many thousand, if not million, describing low acid diets, which are supposed to influence activation of pepsin. And, uh, you know, I, again, what's the, what's the evidence to that, 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 that dietary modification can influence throat symptoms? Martin, would you, would you perhaps comment on that? Thank you very much. So, yeah, there are. There's, um, there's a couple of very popular books, uh, one by somebody called Jonathan Aviv, and another one by Jamie Kaufman. Uh, and the latter, I, I gather, spent some time in the New York Times 10 be- bestsellers list. But that's not too surprising since New York Times bestsellers list usually has five cookery books in its top 10 at any one moment. So in any event, they 
they're similar in many ways. Uh, Jamie's book, I think, delves more into his personal her personal theories of of what causes reflux. They are both not desperately popular with patients. They're, they're, they're quite Puritan. They're quite stringent. Um, and I, I again, I don't think there's great compliance. So I always. I actually point them towards Jamie's book because I think it's more fun than, than Jonathan's, but I think they're much the same in other ways. Uh, and say, yeah, just use this as a guide, use it as a general guide to reducing the amount of acid in your, in your diet. You did ask me what the evidence was, and I haven't answered that deliberately because I don't think there's really any very good randomised, any randomised trials that I'm aware of that look specifically at diet versus everything else. Uh, to my knowledge, I think it's a bit of a gap, but an important gap. Final, the final non-interventional um, options, uh, I suppose, are antidepressants, maybe even psychology. Janet, do you do you sometimes advise patients to take antidepressants? Do you, do you, do you get them to to go for a course of CBT? Does it work? There isn't a strong evidence for antidepressants, and I think it's a big step if someone comes into a physical medicine clinic and goes out with a psychotropic medication script. I think that would be a step probably bigger than that I would take in, out with a trial context. We did do a small trial of imipramine in Globus patients, and a, a rather skewed population persevered with it because we didn't understand they were going to get the early anxiety reaction that happened with some of the tricyclics. There's been a more recent study from the Far East that actually looked quite promising. So I think it comes back to, to Martin's point, which essentially is horses for courses and the personalised medicine thing. So if you're tuned into the patient as they're telling you the story, you can probably get a feeling of what they've tried before, where their self-explanation is leaning. And if they're describing a very stressful life, then you might feel you would use a kind of narrative explanation around their, their psychology, not exactly CBT, but using the same models of a precipitating factor, a perpetuating factor, and so on and identifying if they are catastrophizing, that kind of thing. If they're seriously in a bind with it and um, their life's being impinged, they can't go out of the house because the catar is so bad, then clearly they, you would need to supplement that with a professional psychology support. If someone is interested in acid in the stomach, then things that do no harm, like a bit of dietary modification, uh, are, are perfectly reasonable if the patient seems to have a belief. We're big on moisture, we're big on steam, on sips of water, and all the sort of speech therapy type of interventions for people who've got functional dysphonia as part of the symptom complex. So I think it's having a good basket of sensible tools that you can map um, with the patient's belief system about the symptom and then that will improve your compliance and prevent patients bouncing back to see somebody else. So I mean quite obviously there are a whole raft of potential options but I think clearly we've also identified that often they don't work and, and patients then will come along to people like Paul and myself thinking that maybe surgery will help. So Paul just give us an idea you know, it's always more difficult, I find, having a conversation with somebody who's got purely laryngopharyngeal symptoms in the context of anti-reflux surgery than is patients with regurgitation and heartburn simply because the evidence base is, is weaker and the out, predicting the outcomes is not so easy. So how do you go about counselling patients on the basis of what you think you can do for them and how you can help them? Often patients with LPR-type symptoms, by the time they're sat in a clinic talking to me, they've, they've had their symptoms for quite a considerable period of time. 
they've often tried other forms of treatment. We aren't the first line of treatment. Surgery is not for LPR. You've got to try other other things first. I also think it's important you put you do all the appropriate investigations that we've talked about um, in the last hour. For me, I think it's trying to get the patients what do they want, um, what do they think the outcome is going to be. There is a role for surgery. There's been a few trials out there. The numbers are small, and they've compared normally the roles of PPI versus fund application. There are other surgical options out there which potentially could be better, such as link surgery. And they have found that in some European trials, some trials out the Far East, that those who have had surgical options in those patients that are carefully selected, they do have good medium to long-term outcomes. So for me, when I'm talking to these patients, is finding out what they want, where they want to go, and can they cope with their symptoms on the current treatments they are? If the answer to those questions are yes, I don't jump down the surgical route. If they're really struggling, their lives are being affected, and there is, and the tests that we've done do perform, perform to either a acidic or non-acidic reflux events that I feel that surgery is a role, then yes, it's something that I can potentially offer them. I think that's been a, a fascinating discussion. I think it's quite clear that what's come out of this is there's, there's, there's lots of gaps in our knowledge. There's la- lots of gaps in our ability to test these patients and come up with clear answers as to the cause of their symptoms. And the treatments that we've got for them frequently don't work. So it sounds to me like and I, 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 there's enormous scope to, to look forward in terms of what we, we could potentially hope will come to the future to help us to remedy those problems. So if I can just finish then by going to, to all three of you, starting perhaps with, with Martin, you know, what, where would you see we might be in five or ten years' time? What are, what are the specific gaps that you would like to see filled? And how, how do you think practically we can, we can go about improving outcomes for these patients? Uh, well, I, I think that we're hopefully starting down the right path already by talking to each other more uh, and not just within specialties, but between specialties. And this kind of discussion, I think, is, is really helping us to, to move on the field uh, and interact. I think there are some specific areas which are, are going to change completely as a result of our ability to interrogate data better with big data science, with machine learning, with, with AI. And, and I think certainly, particularly in the area of the relationship between the microbial flora um, and what's going on in terms of inflammation in, in the throat, the esophagus, stomach, elsewhere in the bowel, I think this is going to revolutionize our whole approach to these kind of symptoms in the future. Janet, um, you know, with such a strong research CV, what, what, where would you like to see the focus for research and evidence uh, in the next five or 10 years? Uh, well, I think uh, you, you mentioned alternates um, in the later part of the discussion. And I think it would be quite, because there was that promising, albeit uncontrolled study from Nottingham, I think it would be a, a reasonable next port of call because one could imagine mechanisms that were a bit broader simply than the suppression of hydrogen ion from the from the alginate, the, the composite nature of it, the soothing 
part of it, the barrier, because we don't know if it's mechanical or if it's pepsin or if it's acid or bile or anything else really that might be in the in that phenomenon. And maybe if we could get some kind of distinct therapeutic response, we could begin to identify a cohort of patients who stood aside from some of the others. And that therapeutic trial might be quite helpful and relatively safe. Brings us back to the concepts of personalised medicine again, doesn't it? Paul, finally, from a, from a surgical perspective, what are you looking for in the next five or ten years? So I think you touched on it before, Nick, there's no one perfect test. And I don't think that one perfect test will exist in the next few years. But I think, I think other investigations will come around. They might be old tests that get rehashed. But I think they'll add, add to all investigations that we currently have. And I think it will be finding those patients that, where there is a role for surgery, and there are a small cohort that there is, and taking those patients and giving them an intervention that's appropriate, that's suitable, that can control their symptoms. And I think if you look at surgical intervention for LPR and per se acid reflux, there's better treatments on the market now that have better longer term outcomes with fewer side effects that I think are more tolerable for patients. And I think that's where we'll go over the next few years, Nick. Well, all three of you, thank you very much. That was a a fascinating discussion. Um, It just goes to show that as you get older, you learn more and more that there's much more that you don't know than you do know. But um, I'm most grateful to to all three of you. Thank you for a fascinating discussion and uh, have a good evening.